I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Now, when I first started this podcast, I created a wish list of potential guests. You would as well, right? It's fair to say that Billy Bragg was one of those early entries in my notebook. A musician, author, broadcaster and left-wing activist who fronted the 1980s Red Wedge movement with, amongst others, Paul Weller. He's also pretty active as a gigging musician, touring the world, so tying him down to a recording was always going to be pretty tricky. And here's one other thing that I should mention. On the release of this podcast right now, Billy is the only guest to come on who I've actually interviewed in my former life as a radio presenter. It was one of my absolute career highlights when working at the BBC in the late 90s. He's a hugely talented singer and songwriter. Think about it, to have and to have not. The milkman of human kindness, Levi Stubbs' tears, sexuality, a New England, you woke up my neighbourhood, between the wars, we laughed, I could go on. Billy continues to surprise and delight with his music, and to my ears, never seems to repeat himself, and much like Paul, he's looking to try new things, push himself, into new ways of working and creating music. What you're going to hear over the next hour is a love of the jam. You'll hear about that influence that the band and Paul's lyrics had on him as a young man. You'll hear about supporting the Style Council on an early council meeting tour to the Red Wedge Project, where you'll hear nothing but warmth and gratitude for Paul's input and collaboration throughout. We'll also chat about connections from the solo years, and there are plenty of them, from Go Discs label mates in the 90s to Jules Holland later TV around a kind revolution time. And most of all, throughout the hour-long conversation, you'll hear a man who respects Paul as an innovator and as a huge musical talent with an incredible work ethic, vision, and back catalogue. As you can tell, I'm pretty excited about this one, right? So let's get into it. Billy Bragg, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Oh, this is lovely. I've worked out you're the only person who's come on the podcast that I've interviewed before, which was um, back when I was at BBC Radio Bristol. It would have been 10 end of the 90s, Mermaid Avenue time. 
And we talked about car boot sales in Yeovil quite a bit. Oh, yeah, I was drove past that the other day. (laughs) We moved house um, during the pandemic. Not far. The way to get north from here now doesn't involve going to to get to the M5. You have to go via Yeovil now. In the old days, you have to go via Honiton. It's such a stupid thing. But now, I mean, I drive past that place quite regularly now. The biggest boot sale in Somerset. That's Yeah, yeah. My nan and granddad used to live in Maltop. Oh, right. um, So, yeah, we used to go there regularly. (laughs) Yeah, 37. I think we spoke about that more than we spoke about the album. That's what we're doing so far, aren't we? We haven't even mentioned what's his name. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's going to be the whole thing. People are going to be so interested to find out how to get to uh, Bristol without going up the M5. It's <laughs> sometimes necessary because the, the M5, M4 crossroads in summer and weekends can be absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. nightmare. Hey, look, this is lovely. I'm so pleased you're on. We're obviously going to talk about your career, your connections with Mr. Weller, but we have to start off, first of all, with you being just a fan. And the jam were a big thing yeah. in your life, right? They were, yeah. They were really the first of those punk bands that made sense to me and my mates. We were a bit suspicious of the... Sex Pistols and The Clash, they seemed a bit, um, how to explain really, they seemed a bit art school to me, a bit like um, student bands initially before I'd seen them. And there was something about the jam that had a more of a, a working class suburban aesthetic, which is where we were. You know, we were working class lads living in the suburbs and they kind of had a dynamic that related to the things that we were interested in, which was the early albums by the Stones and the Small Faces and the Who around that summer. Because we've been to see the guys that I knocked around with. It was uh, Wiggy, the kid next door, who taught me to play guitar. He was a huge fan of the Faces. And then Bob Hanley around the corner who was the drummer. His tastes were more eclectic, but we'd kind of gravitated towards that summer. We'd gravitated towards... um or the previous summer, 76, we gravitated towards buying the early albums by the Stones, the Who, and the Small Faces, and we were really into that sort of hardcore beat group thing. So the jam fit right into that. They appeared to us to be straight out of that, like that that kind of a modern iteration, I suppose, of that idea. The Feel Goods were part of it as well in some way, kind of like the Feel Goods, but the Feel Goods were a bit older than us, whereas the jam were the same age as us. So after... um in the city came out, we went to see them at the Nashville Rooms, the jam, uh, which was handy because it was on the district line. You just, you know, get on at Barking and get off at West Kensington <laughs> and you're right there. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's no, literally next been. door to the tube station. I think it's called the Three Kings now. Right. Or the Three Times. It's, it's on, um, is it Tolgarth Road that goes down to Hammersmith Broadway? Anyway, oh, was it, yeah, so it was, it was a pub. It was a pub, right? It was a pub, the Nashville. Okay. Yeah, it was called. Okay. It was called the Nashville Rooms, and on the old pub circuit, it was kind of, it had a kind of country and western vibe. But it was one of the crucibles of punk. The Pistols played there. Me and my little mates played there in Riff Raff in '78. So it was it was a, a key venue in that. Like the Red Cow at Hammersmith, we played there. The Jam, I think, played the same week. I've got the advert from the NME from that period. But yeah, it was really amazing to see people our age doing this. And I remember um, the guy who came on and fixed their amps and put all the mics, you know, made sure everything was okay before they came on, was what appeared to me to be a grey-haired old geezer. And I can remember joking among ourselves, that's probably their dad. <laughs> years later, when I met John Weller, I was like, oh, what's their, what's their dad? It was a bit of a surprise to meet John. That was incredibly impressive to to see him in that context. And then they announced that their next London show would be at the Rainbow Theatre, where they were opening for The Clash. Now, we've sort of been going to the Rainbow. I think we've been to the Rainbow to see the reformed Small Faces earlier that summer, and we've been there to see Ronnie Lane's Slim Chance. So we knew the Rainbow. It was kind of our kind of gig. 
And so we duly went along. It was the early first or second night of the Clash's White Riot Tour. Oh, it was really amazing. It was the prefects, the subway sec, buzzcocks. Someone told me the slits play, but they must have been on at half past five before we got there because I don't remember seeing this. I think I'd remembered seeing them. I don't remember seeing them at all. But the jam were second on the bill to the clash. And to be honest, they, they didn't quite have the energy that they had at the Nashville rooms. I think obviously they'd not worked out how to play a, an auditorium. They worked out how to play a pub. They could really good at playing pubs and, you know, a place like the marquee. They were really good at that. But the, energy that they had, that kind of like, you know, leaping, you know, highly strung, highly sprung energy that they had, it kind of dissipated in the room there. And then the clash came on and they totally had it. And I, and I think from that moment on, we realised that actually, you know, the clash had all the things we liked about the Rolling Stones were embodied in the clash in many ways. Although it was, uh, you know, everyone denied that. It was clear there was a, you know, a Mick and Keith relationship between Joe and Mick. And they played the same amps as the, we, this is the time when we were into amps. And they played the same amps as the Stones. Whereas the Jam were playing these shitty old AC 30s, which, which you could buy at the time. You could buy old, old AC 30s or the Selma equivalent. Uh, you could buy them for like, you know, 30 quid up the local secondhand store. It was a bit like, mm. whereas the Ampeg. Wiggy had an Ampeg that was uh, that we actually bought off of Ronnie Lane, believe it or not. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> out of, and just out of chance, it was out of a um, a classified ad in Merley Maker that there was an Ampeg for sale, and it was what we wanted. And we had we had to go on the train to Richmond and bring it back on the train from Richmond. But it was we didn't meet Laney, but we did meet his roadie, Rush Schlagbaum, who'd been the face his roadie. So kind of there was something about the Clash that really had a to me had a more encapsulated what punk was about. And kind of made me understand what the potential for it was. And then subsequently, um, we went to see the clash at Rock Against Racism. And that was my first sort of political activism. But at the same time, the jam were making records that I thought were really, really interested in. And strangely, when I now, I'm listening to, listen to music a lot when I'm driving, driving back and forth to gigs of all those bands, it's only really the jam that I still listen to. And they still have the ability to move me. I might have the iTunes on random. Boy, about time might come on and I'll turn it up and start singing at the top of my voice <laughs> along to that. And I think, you know, I think the the spirit that Paul had then, he kind of still motivates him. And I, I really admire that. Whereas Joe had kind of, by the mid-80s, Joe had kind of lost himself in a marijuana bush somewhere. You know, I mean, he just wasn't present as a, as a force against statuism, which was a huge disappointment to me during the time of Red Wedge that he was dismissive of it. And obviously, you know, Lydon's doing adverts for Anchor Bar. I don't think we'll see Paul doing that anytime soon. So <laughs> out of that group, that. out of those, and, uh, you should throw the damned in there as well, who, who always were a bit of a parody and they still are, but at least they're still playing, you know, and good luck to them. But out of all those, the only person it seems to me who stayed true to his principles is Paul. And I think, you know, I really admire that, his ability to do that, his willingness to keep making records. I mean, he's made he's made more records since... 2000, and I've made in my entire career, 40 years. You know, the fact he goes back and that's sees, that's his job. Brilliant. I don't see making records as my job. Doing gigs is my job and always has been, really. And I make records when i am got something to say or I really should make a record in case people forget I exist. <laughs> you know, but it's not something I've ever really been into, whereas Paul clearly lives to record and to write. That's the life of an artist. And, again, you know, his singular path that he's carved for himself 
Most people's absolute limit of people being interested in what they're doing is 10 years. There are very few people that I can think of. Bowie will be one. Obviously, McCartney's another. But Paul, and you know, it's not as if the Jam or the Star Council were as big as the Beatles and have that goodwill around the world. You know, it's a UK thing, really. I think Paul's fame, but he still remains focused on it. You know, he hasn't sort of, I mean, I've, I've gone off and done sort of written books to keep myself interested because I'm, you know, a bit sort of after a while, you, you know, album to album tour, you think, oh, what else can I do to break it up a little bit? But Paul's just focused on that. And, you know, being someone who's also at a similar path, although not to such great heights. So you, you, you got to admire that. Hey, do you know what? I know I love this because this is going to be so special. I've only asked one question, but already we're 10 minutes in. I now I've got to get a glass. I haven't got a glass of water. I'm going to leave my voice. I'm going to get a glass of water. No, I love this because I've literally, all I've said is it's fair to say you're a fan. And bang, we're into the memories. Well, we're just, straight there. <laughs> I just wanted to explain to explain to <laughs> listeners what kind of fan I am. Yeah, well, let's talk um, setting yeah. suns because here we are. This this album here, and I'm yeah. and I'm and I right in thinking this this really kind of changed. This was really influential in you joining the army. I read was that right? Kind of. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was influential. It kind of it brought me into that mindset. I think the dark um, days of the uh, of the early eighties as uh, the Cold War was getting stoked up, and Thatcher um, came into power in '79, and it seemed that so many of the ideals of the '60s and '70s were being rejected, not just in pop terms, but also in terms of the post-war consensus. The idea that there is such a thing as the common good, and that we, you know, broadly all of us pay our taxes in order that we can all get by. You know, local councils should provide you with housing and education and social services and healthcare. These ideas were sort of suddenly coming under threat and the clouds were darkening and my, my little band had split up and I'd run out of things to do. And where I grew up, I grew up in Barking in East London and the main employer there and when I was at school was Ford's Motor Company at Dagenham. You know, everybody's dad either worked for Ford's or worked for one of the ancillary companies that were supplying them, which is what my dad did. He was a warehouse man. So our, our careers education was every year all the boys got to go to the main body plant and have a look. I don't know where the girls went. I've not absolutely no idea what they did with the girls <laughs> that day. But um we all got to go to the main body plant. And afterwards, if you came back and said you didn't want to work at Ford's, which I didn't, it was like Hades. I'll be perfectly honest with you. It was a dreadful place. <laughs> um in, in many ways, I learned to play guitar, so I wouldn't have to work there. I think um, we had a tour around the tractor plant there when we were kids. Yeah, <laughs> really, <laughs> really not. The sort of place where you want to spend your working life, frankly, unless you're, unless you're really into cars, which I never really was. When I said I didn't want to work there, the careers officer literally said, well, you've got three choices in Bragg, the Army, the Navy, or the Air Force, and gave me the, the, the brochures. <laughs> to go that was it. So um, when, when the band broke up and, and the clouds were darkening, that kind of came back as, as a means of kind of pressing the eject button on my, my life. The army came in, and I suppose there were setting suns up on the hills playing Little Boy Soldiers. There was uh, Armed Forces by Elvis Costello, who was another huge fan of Elvis. And, of course, um, Sandinista had a you know a strong don't join message to call up. It's up to you not to heed the call up. But the only person who was actually speaking directly to me was Kate Bush with Army Dreamers. <laughs> and that, you know, Kate recognised that, Unlike the other three, Kate recognised that working class lads don't always have a lot of choice in these things. Sometimes the only option to escape 
uh, uh, situation that fate has cast upon them is to press the eject button on their previous life and go and uh, and join the army. And um, also, I fancy driving a tank. There's not many jobs you can do that in. So, <laughs> despite what Paul said on setting suns, I was off. I'd say all, uh, all more. No sound effects. Sound effects, rather, is probably the most influential album in terms of the jam records for me. There, there's such great songs on there, great lyrics, great melodies. That will be that will be my sort of. Although I never actually got to see him again after uh, after seeing him at that Clash gig. I don't know why. I mean, I was out of circulation up in Northamptonshire playing in my little band, so I didn't really um, run into Paul again and until in the, more in the mid eighties. You come back to music, obviously, thank Christ. Um, and 83 was your first, uh, let's call it a mini album, because I think that's how we termed it, because it was, you know, seven tracks, 16 minutes, life's arrived with Spy versus Spy. But that, that puts you on the map. And, and those songs are still songs that we love and listen to today, my friend. Yeah. The Milkman of Human Kindness, a New England tracks like that. And, yeah. Yeah. And that's obviously off the tail end of the jam finishing, pulls into his new thing with the Star Council. We'll talk about that connection. But what brought you back to music then? Uh, well, oddly, one of the other reasons why I wanted to join the army was I thought it would, it would get rid of the idea that I could ever be a, a singer-songwriter. It would just sort of like drown in the kittens on that <laughs> ambition. But actually, when I got there, when I got there, I got more inspired to write more songs. I thought, oh, it's not going to go away. This is really not going to go away. So I thought, well, if I come out, I'll give it one more go, one more go. And and the way to do it. I thought was in almost like a, a kind of like a all or nothing solo electric guitar, almost like fix bayonet and charge and see what happens. And fortunately, um, at a time when everybody else was zigging towards um, sort of electronic duos, there was a lot of those about. It was the time of, you know, soft cell and um, erasure and people like that. Doing what I'm doing kind of stuck out, if you heard me. And anyone who was disappointed the way the kind of punk idea had just gone out of fashion was going to connect with what I was doing. So that was very fortunate in there. And it did have elements of fire and skill style jam in it, I thought. And also I, I kind of like the Paul's ability to have that cutting edge, but also record something like English Rose, something soft and vulnerable like that. So I, I was doing that same kind of thing. And that contrast between the sort of hard edge politics and the vulnerable side, man, the iron mask and to have and to have not, that was kind of where I was pitching myself. And that kind of, that, I think there's an element of what the jam were doing in that more so than the clash. Although people sort of thought of me as a one man clash because of the politics. Um, but I think it really stylistically, certainly something like um, the busy girl buys beauty. I was riffing on um, beat surrender, I think. That kind of like clipped, but, but, but I was trying to, you know, do something along those lines. And I think that resonated with Paul because one of the first things he talked to me about was that song. We talked about songwriting. So he must have picked up on something there that I tuned into his wavelengths. I mean, that's something that both of you have, you know, the career as uh, masters at writing the political lyric, those kind of scathing lyrics in a catchy song that we want to sing along to. And even the latest, your latest album, you know, the, the cracker of these beautiful love songs that, that or, you know, the songs that make you feel something is just remarkable. And it's an amazing skill, honestly, and from both of you. But let's talk 83 then. So it was late 83 when you first connected. You're on the same bill. I think it was, was it Youth CND or something like that? Rather? Was it Youth CND or was it Young Trade Unionists? I think it was somewhere on the South Bank. The Young Trade Unionists had set up a, a little stage there. And I was playing and Paul came down. And that was the first time I met him. 
It was kind of late in the year. We're both, if you see the photographs, we're both well wrapped up. But he played my guitar. I just thought that was so great. He borrowed my guitar to play. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. And I kind of managed to um, temper my fanboy instincts uh, then. And obviously he did see something in that because shortly after that, I was invited to open for, on the, the Star Council tour, which I think might have been the first Star Council tour, was it? Yeah, it was Council Meetings Part 1. And when well, yeah. you say open, they open. They, that's true. They <laughs> did indeed open, which was really impressive, really, really impressive that they went out and played Meeting Over Yonder by the Impressions to kick things off, to get everybody in the auditorium so that when I went on stage, there was people there. and. You know, in many ways, I was very fortunate that the first encounter I had with a bona fide pop star was Paul, because the way he treated people uh, he worked with was very influential on me. You know, he was, he, you know, I wasn't going out and having a beer with him every night. We weren't knocking around like mates or anything, but he wanted to make sure that I was happy with what was I was doing, that my spot that I had was working. Everybody was helping me out and making sure it made me feel part of, I suppose, the really part of the, the event, but really it was like part of the family because they were like, the Star Council were like a big family. You've got John there in charge. You've got Uncle Kenny, uh, Kenny Wheeler, sorting things out. And then Paul as the kind of like, you know, the front of house and star of the show and the, the guy who's wants you to be there. You're not there because you're there to sell tickets. You're there because he likes what you're doing and, and thinks that you have something to bring to the show. And I very much felt that. I very much felt that we were, Part of that, part of the whole thing, you know, and, and trying to get involved in that. In 1984, you've got to remember the minor strikes just around the corner. And, you know, Artists Against the Party is already up and running. Uh, Nicaragua Solidarity. There's a lot of stuff already going on. I mean, my 19, early 1984 was just a run of benefit gigs in dispersed with, with the, the Star Council tour. And it was a great thing to be part of because I was on the bus with them, you know, because it was just me solo. I was traveling with them on the bus, and we did some amazing gigs. I think we played the last ever gig at the Glasgow Apollo, which was an amazing place. It was a, it had a, a double balcony, and the, and the balconies moved. Me and I was with Andy Kershaw at the time. We decided to go and watch the Star Council's first bit from the audience that night. I don't know why we did, but I'm glad we did because when the Star Council came on, the noise that the audience made was a noise akin to Concord taking off. I'd never heard a noise like it before. It was just incredible. And it was really helpful to me because it revealed me a really important thing that you need to know if you're going to play in Glasgow, which is that the, the noise the audiences there make when they like you is the same noise that other audiences make when they're going to kill you. <laughs> so not to be put off when they really, really go off like a rocket because they're really into what you're doing, you know. My first proper gig back, oh, it's actually the second gig of the tour, but the first one that felt like a proper gig, on my tour last year, I was very fortunate to get a tour in between the end of Omicron and the, at the end of Delta and the start of Omicron. I was, by pure coincidence, but the first real proper it's good to be back was the Barrowland Ballroom oh, in yeah. Glasgow on a Saturday. Uh, the audience was just so pleased to be back. I was so pleased to be back. I think I played seven more songs and we're in the set. And came off stage there. Glasgow audiences are just so great uh, for that sort of thing. And that was my introduction to the fan mania that was still, there was still a bigger element, you know, a lot of jam fans in those audiences. And they still had that same kind of all belongs to us kind of attitude. You know, people hadn't got bored of that then. So watching Paul deal with it, watching how Paul um, 
approached the idea of connecting with the fans and what he was doing was really, for me, it was a great, you know, I could have gone out with any, any name band at the time and probably been, you know, peripheral to the proceedings, just a bloke who come on and played and then he was gone. But that wasn't how it worked at all. And it was all down to Paul's personal attention to the way the tour was running and who he was working with and why they were there. I was very, very fortunate to have that experience with, as my first experience with a proper pop star. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, because and it's really unique where they come on first, then it's you, then the questions, then I think you came back, mm-hmm. then the Star Council. Um, let's yeah. talk about some of those characters that you brought up. So John Weller, there's so many amazing stories that have come through on this podcast, but um, you used to call him Mr. Weller, didn't you? I think you said, yeah, he kind of, you know, he was a figure that I was very familiar with growing up, you know, the builder, Mr. Weller, the builder. And um, my manager, Peter Jenner, who'd managed Pink Floyd, and The Clash and Ian Dury and The Blockheads had been to public school. Pete wasn't the kind of character I ever really met in life. I only met him in later years. And I kind of, you know, I used to take the mickey out of him about, you know, for instance, the band Crass, you know, the right. punk anarchist band Crass. He used to pronounce that as Cross. And I used to be, <laughs> Pete, you can't say that, mate. Don't keep saying that. You've got to say Crass. Stop crying. You know. Whereas John, as soon as I met him, I knew ex- I, I knew exactly from the working class background that I came from, him and Kenny as well, to to some extent. I was on completely uh, familiar ground with them, knew exactly where they were coming from. And I understood, you know, when John uh, expressed his opinion and I saw where that was coming from, he was very sceptical about the politics. You know, he was probably a working class Tory. I don't know that at all, but he respected what Paul was doing. But he was also very sceptical about the politics of it all as well when we were doing Red Wedge. But, you know, Paul was to some extent as well. So I respected that. But yeah, him and Kenny, I kind of really, I really got on with them. I suppose I was like one of Paul's mates who would come around in the evening, you know, before we went up to the pub. That, I had that kind of, kind of, <laughs> that kind of relationship, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well. Oh, you know, I'm sure it'd been the same. I don't, yeah. I don't remember meeting his mum. I'm sure she was around, but it would have been the same, you know. Yeah. Evening, Mrs. Weller. Oh, you're nice to see. We're just going up the pub with Paul. It's that sort of relationship, you know, yeah. which was lovely. That's how they worked. That's how the, the Paul Weller machine worked. And that was a huge advantage when it came to Red Wedge because we just plugged into the way they did things. Yeah. We'll talk about Red Wedge. Just what was the Kenny Wheeler story where didn't you have a bet with Kenny? He would find people who were late on the bus and he would find us a fiver. This is on the Red Wedge tour. Because it was like herding cats, the Red Wedge tour. And he it was his job. Unfortunately, I think we, the Red Wedge, Ensemble was less familiar, uh, less familiar with him than the Star Council lot. He, he was kind of like their, their, their teacher and, you know, <laughs> kind of get him in control, but it was harder for him with Red Wedge. And, uh, yeah, he was late for the bus and we had to, we, we find him, <laughs> gave it back to him. And he, and I think he framed it. Yeah. We, we yeah. caught him on that, but that wasn't his greatest faux pas. That wasn't his greatest faux pas. He made an even better faux pas when we were coming back from Newcastle at the end of the tour and we stopped at Newport Pagnell or somewhere, one of those places might be in the Blue Ball, uh, on the M1. We all get back on the bus, and after about half an hour, we're on the road. Someone says, "Where's Mick Tolbert? Where's Mick? Where's Mick?" Someone we've left Mick Tolbert, and this is the day before mobile phones and Uber and stuff like that. So poor old Mick has got left. You know, he probably could still be there if it weren't for the fact that they, you know, he had to he had to use his own bushcraft that he learned in the Merton Parkers to get back to. Them. Can you imagine how many Star Council fans are coming in for a cup of tea? And you're like, oh, Mick Tolbert. Hello, <laughs> mate. Where are you going? You <laughs> can't drop me at a tube station. Could you? I don't know how he got back, but yeah, that was Kenny Wheeler's worst nightmare. <laughs> he got Paul, but he lost Mick. Brilliant. I love it. So let's talk Red Wedge. I'm particularly interested in the lead up to it because 85, we'd had the minor strike you mentioned. You'd had the Jobs for Youth tour. And 
you were doing lots of benefits at that time, Paul the same. So I'm guessing that's where your worlds start to collide. And there was this meeting at Labour HQ, July 1985, which I'm guessing was the start of Red Wedge. There was you and Paul there. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, the Jobs for Youth tour was, I went out on the road with the Labour Party to see what would happen, basically. It was a kind of like a, a dry run for the Red Wedge project. So it was both to see how the Labour Party would respond to someone coming in with their own agenda and meeting them halfway, would they would could they work with that? And also to see how the press reacted to it, whether the press would pour piss on it, whether they would see in the context of the mid-1980s that this was a practical thing to do. Because the, the basic idea about Red Wedge wasn't that we were all necessarily huge fans of the Labour Party. I was. I was a member of the Labour Party because I felt if I'm going to engage with them, I really should properly engage with them. But really, Red Wedge, what bound us together was our opposition to Margaret Thatcher. That was the thing that we were all agreed with. So with the end of the minor strike, that was such a, a heartbreak. The question then became, what do we do now? Do we just kind of go back to being in smash hits and doing top of the pops? Or do we carry on trying to use music to bring about some kind of change? And the only viable vehicle for defeating Margaret Thatcher was the Labour Party and the 1987 election. So it seemed to me a good idea to see if people were up for that. So I went out on the Jobs for Youth tour and it was well received and the Labour Party were interested. The key thing was, I think, that Labour had a new leader, Neil Kinnock. And what's significant about Kinnock was he was the first leader of a political party who was born after 1940. So he was of that generation that gave us all the great bands of the 1960s. He grew up listening to pop music and he understood how music could make a difference. He was the kind of person you could sit down and have a chat with him about the Who or about the Beatles or, you know, uh, whereas you can't imagine ever having a conversation about anything really that you had in common with Margaret Thatcher. So that, that was really significant. So his, his Labour Party, his leadership kind of made, created a situation where something like Red Wedge could happen. Although I stress that Red Wedge was independent of the Labour Party. It was our own initiative and we came to them with our ideas. You know, they would never have allowed us to call it Red Wedge. In fact, Lynn Franks was at the meeting where we were discussing Red Wedge and she said, uh, oh, Red Wedge. Oh, that doesn't that sound a bit socialist? And there was a tumbleweed moment in the room. And I said, yeah, that's the point, Lynn. And then we moved on. That was the kind of relationship we had with them. There was that element in there where they were like, oh, you know, much, you know, as cautious as they are today, really, about that. But we were, we were a bit more gung ho, having been politicized by the minor strike. And so Kinnock was absolutely crucial, but Paul really was the absolute crucial aspect of it because otherwise it would have been Billy Bragg and a load of little lefty Herberts. But Weller, I think I'm right in saying Weller was the only artist who did minors benefits and Live Aid. I don't think anybody else did that. Anybody else was in those two spaces. And he was huge at the time, you know. I think uh, it's our favourite shop, but just yep. been ma massive, yeah, yeah, massive. And walls come tumbling down. In many ways, he had the most to lose. He had the most to lose in terms of his career if it all went tits up. But he committed himself to it 100% and, you know, made the whole Star Council infrastructure available to us. You know, basically, the Style Council were the backing band for everybody on the tour. Not that I needed the backing band, but everybody else. The, the ability of people to come in and play was predicated on the Style Council opening their operation to everybody who, who wanted to come. Because beyond the initial sort of hardcore of the tour, which was the Stylies, uh, the Communards, myself, Junior Giscombe, and Lorna G, 
there, you know, people would turn up and want to play. Johnny Marr came with me. He came along and, and played a few songs with me in my set. And some of the Maddy, the guys from Madness came along and they sang with the Star Council. And Tom Robinson would come along and guest. And by the time we got to Newcastle, the entire Smiths had turned up. You know, the Smiths <laughs> played that night. Morrison I love the way this up. is building and building as you go yeah, through. Yeah, it was incredible feeling on the tour. And whatever people say about the politics in reflection, the tour was just absolutely brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It had that feel of um, the Motown Review tours or the Stax Review, you know, with loads of bands playing together. And I think another thing was that was crucial about it was we were kind of, you know, when you think of that initial lineup, so Paul, Jimmy, Junior, Lorna, and me, we we're all kind of obviously not Lorna, but we we're all soul boys. And Lorna was more kind of came from a kind of reggae thing, but really we were all kind of soul boys. So connecting with that Motown review thing was subconscious. But I think we were all, you know, the choice of songs that we were singing, you know, um, a lot of Curtis Mayfield stuff, you know, it, it just had a great feel. It really felt like we were the unity that we sang about. We were embodying it. And the audiences just loved it. The audiences lapped it up. It was a great thing to be part of. So Anna Joy David, who was heavily involved in this with you and Paul, has been on the podcast. And the thing is, it wasn't just these amazing gigs, but it was also these incredible day events as well. So you'd go into the communities, you'd work with young people, you'd have workshops and panels and discussions and that kind of thing as well, right? Yeah, this is crucial what Anna Anna Joy brought to it, because otherwise it would have just been gigs. Oh, it wouldn't just been gigs because we had the politicians there. What we did was rather than allow politicians to give speeches, we would introduce the local Labour politicians to the audience at the beginning of the gig and then send them in the foyer if people wanted to talk to them. I can remember one leaving the gig. So we finished and we'd unloaded and we've got in the bus from uh, Birmingham and Claire Short, a local MP, is still standing there with her back against the pole that's holding up the balcony, surrounded by spiky punks, still debating politics, smoking a cigar. And I was like, that's my kind of politician. That is my kind of politician. And it was good. It was, you know, it was interesting. It, what they, you know, they weren't angry debating. They were really engaged in the whole thing. And that was, you know, one end. And the other end, there was, um, the Labour Party in Derby, who... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Didn't want us to come there because, and this is what they told us, we don't have any young people in Derby. So it wasn't (laughs) fabulously embraced everywhere. But Anna Joy, Anna Joy was the key organizer in the day events. She and her team were doing outreach to people and that really gave I think gave so much more context to what we were trying to do. So what would happen at the day event when we got to town while the, the crew was setting up the stage, we would go to, you know, a local youth center or a library, it might be, or a community center. And then how many of, of us were free would sit down with local 
MPs and take questions from young people and talk about what we were trying to do and talk about the viability of the Labour Party. And they were really, really fascinating. I mean, some places, I think we were in Wrexham, where a guy said, we, you know, we don't need the Labour Party here, Bill. We need, you know, give us guns. We need guns to deal with this. It's like, well, that's a bit serious. <laughs> but, yeah, it was cool. I mean, it was hard because at the, at the same time, the Labour Party Young Socialists, who, who were hosting a lot of these gigs, were had been heavily infiltrated by militant. So there was a bit of this going on between the Labour Party and the LPYS, which is why the Derby people didn't want us to come, probably, because they didn't want people joining the LPYS. But we were trying to keep out of that and not become sectarian and make them work together. So that we're not going to do this unless you work together to do this. And most of the time work, there was a couple of places where the um, LPYS overpromised a bit. We were in a difficult situation there. But most of the time, it worked really well. And, and, and again, you know, that was down to Anna Joy, who I don't know why she never ended up in Parliament, Anna Joy. She would have made a, a great parliamentarian. She went off, I think, after, after the... Um, because we were still kind of doing stuff after 87, after 93. 93, in some ways, Red Wedge was still active then, not Paul's involvement, but the rest of us were on a lower, a smaller level. But that, in some ways, was more of a kick in the teeth than 87, because Thatcher had gone, and we thought, yeah, we're finally going to see the fruition of what we put so much work in to get Kinnock as Prime Minister. And the failure of that knocked a lot of people sideways. You know, a lot of friends of mine who've been activists, they went off to do other things, like train as teachers or go and become nurses, you know, other ways of being part of the common good. And Anna Joy went off to live in Spain. And I think if she'd have stuck around and gone and found herself a, you know, a Labour seat somewhere, she could have easily been one of those, that huge input, uh, influx of women that came in with Blair in 1997. You know, whether she'd felt comfortable with it, I don't know. But I always felt that she would have made been great in that role. It's one of those things she made her life choices and I, I respect them, of course. But it would have been great to see her bring her focus and her politics. You know, she still has that radical streak in her. Uh, it would have been great to have someone like that in Parliament. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that came through, I think, in my chat with Anna Joy David on the podcast was this kind of discussion we had around this lack of ideas in politics right now, this, uh, this lack of ambition to try new things, to do things differently. And that was something that came out of Red Wedge, wasn't it? That kind of first blare, that new Labour manifesto came off the back of so many of those ideas came off the back of Red Wedge, really. Well, a lot of the ideas were in there. Yeah. I mean, we had our own manifesto which was signed off by Neil Kinnock, which touched on so many uh, issues that are still current today, the climate, LGBTQI rights, um, although the alphabet didn't go that far in those days. And those kind of issues that have always engaged young people, we were pushing hard to get those in there. And certainly Peter Mandelson, who was hanging around a lot uh, at the time, you know, his, his office was next door to the place where we used to meet in uh, Labour Party headquarters. He certainly picked up ideas of presentation, ideas of um, connectivity, I think, the way you would do things. So um, not to suggest that Red Wedge was a precursor of New Labour, but it, they were certainly about updating the Labour Party. I mean, the first gig I ever did for the Labour Party, which was in the European elections in 1984, the headline act on, on of the cultural event was Clive Dunn. Uh, you know, from Dad's Army. Dad's Army. Yeah, he was as Granddad, dressed up as Granddad, singing his old Granddad song. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm I'm there singing to have to have not, and I'm like, this is weird. They didn't really have that cultural dynamic going on. You know, the the arts minister was uh, Norman Buchan, who'd been a folk singer in the fifties, the shadow arts minister in Scotland. 
And, you know, it kind of didn't really connect with us at all. So we were looking for people like, you know, Ken Livingston, who was doing great stuff at the GLC, putting on free gigs in uh, Battersea Park and stuff like that, were much, much more on our wavelengths, as was Kinnock. You know, Kinnock always was a staunch supporter of Red Wedge, even when some in the Labour Party were warning him that we was, you know, liable to say things that he didn't agree with. I still get texts from him every now and then on, so if I've said something on Twitter or, you know, he sees something that he thinks connects with what I'm doing, he drops me a line, which is great. He was, uh, it's a shame he was never prime minister. He didn't make a great prime minister. Now, look, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was that of how it kind of ended for Paul, because there's this, the final event I can find where you're both together is DJing with Norman Cook. Hey, this is pre Fat Boy Slim, right? This was a yeah. club, club night in February 1988. Would that be right? Yeah, was it at the uh, Town and Country Club? I'll tell you what was funny about that night is um, we all took turns in DJing. Obviously, we weren't really paying much. We were all in the backstage dressing room with the drinks for free because I spoke to someone afterwards there and he said, why did you, everybody, every 30 minutes, we had to listen to The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott. <laughs> <laughs> because everybody played it. We didn't realise it. It'll be like, no, not again. Like, come on, you know. This is, the first three times was fine, but after about the sixth time, everyone was like, <laughs> yeah. Weird. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, after 87, the defeat in 87 kind of knocked the wind out of Red Wedge, of course, which is bound to because that was what our focus was. There were other initiatives that carried on, but Paul afterwards never was quite as engaged as he had been during the election campaign. and. When I read about him saying, you know, I was, you know, very sceptical about the politicians, they were just using us. I mean, he was saying that at the time. He said it to me all the time. So I can't, I've got no counter to that. All I can say was, look, respect, mate, because despite that, you still put your career on the line for us. So I've got, you know, I've got no qualms with him saying that. You know, and when people mention it to me, I'm like, yeah, well, they were. We were using them and they were using us. That's the deal. And for some of us... That's the pragmatic aspect of politics. But for other people, that impinges on their principles. And if that's how Paul feels now, well, I respect that because that's how he felt at the time. There's, there's all these other little connections which we must talk about before you go. So one, you mentioned kind of finding other things to do outside of the music and um, and writing. And there's the, there was the book Roots, Radicals and Rockers, which was how Skiffle changed the world. And there's a Paul Weller connection with this. Didn't you give Weller a, a copy of the book? <laughs> I did. That was the last time I saw him. They had me on later. Uh, oh, with on. Jules Holland, right. Yeah. yeah. He was on uh, promoting A Kind Revolution. Wow, yeah. what a great album that is. Oh, yeah, what a yeah, great yeah. album. He, was, he, he played The Cranes are back. Oh, it's so beautiful. I was going to mention that song. He played that, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm buying this. This yeah. is definitely going in the car stereo. He said, well, yeah, that's interesting. Like, yeah, do you want a copy? And I gave it to him, and it was, you know, the hardback was. <laughs> he said, bloody hell. He said, that's a bit of a. I said, well, yeah, it's a book, Paul, isn't it? It's got, you know, it's like, I said to him, you should write one. You should say, oh, no, 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 too, too busy making records, which is true. Yeah, give him his due. But I'd love to read a book he wrote. I'd love to read that, yeah. his take on it all. Yeah. Because, you know, he was right there at the beginning. He's, you know, both in terms of punk, but also in terms of his career. I mean, he kind of like almost went from school to being in the jam. And I think that would be a really interesting book to read and how he, you know, how he's managed to stay true to himself. In the end, I think that's all you can do. You can't expect to be the fulcrum on which the world changes. That's very, very, very few people get to be that person. Not many, even a smaller number of artists who get to do that. But to be able to have a vision and what's the North Star that Paul navigates by to be able to do that? Because I get lost. I'll be perfectly honest with you. I get lost. I mean, particularly during the pandemic, I was like, no gigs, no nothing. And and to, to... I wrote an album and recorded an album. To do that from a standing start was like, whoa, 
I had to start with a blank sheet of paper. I've never done that before. Whereas Paul seems to just roll on, and it's not like he's making the same album over and over again like Oasis. You know, he's kind of like, tew, tew, he's over there, he's gone here, he's this way. You know, he's like, whoa, there's something going on here. There's someone who really has a vision. And I'd be very interested to hear him talk about that, to hear him reflect on it. I think he's, in interviews, I think he's a bit, it's still, I don't know why, I thought he's still a bit defensive. He's still a bit like, keeps his cards to his chest. Again, I respect that. You don't want to press all over you. But I'd love to hear him thinking out loud in a book, you know, where he's got pages and pages to be able to just, this is how I, this is how I came to, to this place. And this is how I, this is how I dealt with that bit in between the Star Council and um, Wildwood, which yeah. was a real tough time for him, a really tough time. And I'm really pleased it was my record label, or a record label that I worked with, Godis, that gave me some. In fact, my partner, Juliet De Valero Wills, was really absolutely key to getting Paul to sign up to Godis. That was great as well. There's another future guest on the podcast then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if you get I'd love to, to hear about that it. story. She's yeah, also, wow. she's also, uh, a, she was also a key player in uh, Two Tone. She managed Selector. Oh, wow. Um, and worked with Jerry Dammer and very close with Jerry and uh, Rick Rogers. But she won't, I'm like, why don't you write a book? Write a book. Uh, no, some people just don't fancy it, do they? No, no, no. You know, whereas I sort of kind of got into it really through, you know, when you sort of write a thousand words on Facebook, you think, oh, this isn't that hard, actually. I could probably do this. But not everyone's like that. It's anyway, it's a topic you're passionate about, right? And yeah. In that space. Always write what you know. Don't be trying to write about something. I had a chip on my shoulder about Skiffle. It was disrespected and I thought it shouldn't be. So that, you know, and my... Experiencing punk, punk very, being very similar to Skiffle and being a DIY anti-commercial genre of music was really, really helpful in that. You mentioned, let's talk about that lockdown period. And as a touring musician, I mean, Christ, that must be terrifying, I would have thought. But how you approached that was similar to how Paul approached his album, Fat Pop. You were kind of uh, sending bits off to friends and colleagues yeah. and people you were working with, right? And and little voice notes, which is a new thing I've read about Paul. Is it's all like it, things recorded in the phones and, and stuff like that. So you work in very similar ways on that one. Yeah. No, that's not normally how I work. You know, I normally go in the studio and I'm sitting in there with everybody nodding and, you know, frowning if something happens that I don't like. And that usually locks me into the process and I start writing more songs, you know, so I really get focused. Um, cause I'm not writing songs all the time. I'm just, you know, I, I need reason to, unless one grabs me by the scruff of the neck and won't go, let go until I write it. Um, but yeah, that, that was a really, really interesting process and collaborating with Romeo Stoddart and David Zumi, who were the joint producers and also arrangers. I wanted to work with people who did arrangements. So that was kind of interesting. And I know, and I know Paul's smart enough to know that you can freshen things up by collaborating with people. You know, I see the people that he, and not necessarily name people, you know, people that he's, he respects and people that he feels he has some kind of intuitive connection with. And that is always interesting. And one of the um, the best experiences I ever had in the studio was making uh, Mermaid Avenue with Wilco, which was a hundred percent collaboration. You know, completely, complete immersion. And I really, really enjoyed that uh, because it it took the pressure off me being the bloke who has to say, you know, what song is next, how we're going to sing it, and what biscuits we're going to have at tea break. You know, but also I, on that one, it's not even the the words were coming from Woody Guthrie as well. Yeah. Right? So it's similar to yeah. Paul on True Meanings where he was working with other writers on some of the songs. He wasn't even, and I, I read some stuff about him saying like he loved that experience. He didn't have to worry about what he was writing and how his words would be interpreted because they weren't his. And I guess it's that similar experience. Exactly the same. Yeah. When I rang Natalie Merchant to ask her to come and sing on the record, she said, you're making an album and you don't have to write no words. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so actually like, wow, that's great. So yeah, 
But I mean, I think in that you can see Paul trying to, you know, freshen up the way he makes records. Okay, I've done it that way. What's another way to do this? How do we do this another way? And I'm kind of got to that stage now. I'm I'm thinking like, you know, if I'm going to make a record, I, I, it really needs to be engaging. You know, the album before Tooth and Nail was recorded in five days in the basement of Joe Henry's house in Pasadena. That was I've never done that before. That was a real challenge. Can I do this? How do we do this? You know, how does that work? So, you know, if I'm going to make a record, and then, and then in between I made an album on a train in America. So if I'm going to make a record, it needs to, to be something that's not just go in the studio and record. It has to be engaging. And I think you can see that in, in Paul's 20th, in, in the 21st century anyway, the albums that he's made. He's looking at ways to, to do it differently every time and not just do it by rote. You know, obviously, his earlier albums, his earlier solo albums, he's building up his, his confidence and his, you know, his style. But I think... In since 2000, he's been on a really interesting journey. And sometimes I am get where he's coming from. Other times he's gone off in the bushes somewhere. I can hear him thrashing about over there. And, I, and then I think, oh, well, I don't know where he's going. And then boom, he's suddenly back on the track in front of me singing about, you know, Hopper's paintings and stuff like that. So you can always trust him to find something interesting. Well, let's talk about this. Here it is. Like, this is your 10th studio album, right? So the million things that never happened. And I mean, there's a lot of content on there as well. It's fact, if you think back to that mini LP at the beginning and the seven tracks of 16 minutes or whatever, there was a lot you did want to say in, in yeah. this LP, right? And we're kind of days away from you heading over to the US and Canada to get back on the road. It must be really exciting to be able to tour that album this time around. Yeah, I am looking forward to that because it's been a long time. You know, over the last few years, unlike Paul, I go to America a lot. You know, I average, you know, since 1980, before, I averaged a couple of trips a year, not always to tour, but I'm very fortunate that there's an audience there, the old college radio audience, who are kind of still into what I'm doing. I'm not playing massive shows, but, you know, most cities, I can hit most most of the major cities there and find a decent club audience. And I feel very privileged in doing that. And particularly at a time when the politics in America are the way they are, it's really interesting time for me to, to go over there and play. It's a shame that Paul didn't really get over there because there was certainly was a lot of strong jam fans. And when I used to go in the early days, people were always talking to me about Paul, particularly in California. You know, there's a very strong mod vibe over there. It's a pity Paul didn't engage with the Americans a little bit more, maybe. But then again, he, he is... Without wishing to be offensive, there is something quintessentially English about the way he works and the way he, he is as a person, not in his music. His music is a much broader palette than that. But he kind of has a, a kind of, you know, this is me and take me as I am. This is what I do. You don't feel you, he wants you to love him. He wants you to hear him. He wants you to appreciate him. But he ain't going to pander to where he thinks you are. He's going to, you know, forge his own, you know, there's a line in, in the city. You better listen now. You've said your bit. That, su- that sums up Paul's attitude to me. I think it was right there at the beginning. Right there at the beginning. It's right there now. It's still there now. You know, he's the governor. He's the governor. I love it. I love it. Well, look, it's going to be really exciting to see you back out on the road. I know um, there's also the tour that's just been announced with um, Paul Heaton and Jackie yeah. Abbott as well, which is going to be amazing. Yeah, that's great. The tickets are going like gangbusters for that. So that's really great. And I did see someone saying that the only dream addition to that would be Paul Weller. <laughs> and I can could, I could see where those people are coming from. That would be, but it's going to be. Yeah, Paul and Jackie, but yeah, with Weller as well, that would be yeah, that'd be brilliant. It wouldn't be Red Wedge because notoriously the House Martins wouldn't do Red Wedge because we wouldn't come out in favour of abolishing the monarchy. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, that's the that reason was, for not that was their reason, yeah. And then next year, New Zealand and Australia 2023 yeah, as well. So. All around the world. Well, look, the new album is fantastic, I have to say. It's a, it's a it's a really lovely listen, man. And it's so good that you're kind of still doing it, still producing the music, because that's a joy yeah. for us fans as much as for yourself, I imagine. So thank you. Yes, man. Um, I have two final questions for you yeah. before you go, right? You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the Star Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with? Well, obviously, it, for me, it would be the jam. And probably, I think it will probably be that's entertainment. Ah, because that's all about that song as well. I right? did yeah. talk to him about it. Yeah, early on, he um, was very dismissive of it. This was this might have been uh, probably Red Wedge time because we had a conversation about this and Levi Stubbs Tears. Ah, in fact, that's what started. He came up while I was, and I I didn't have Levi Stubbs Tears on that first tour, so it must be Red Wedge. And I was playing Levi Stubbs Tears in the sound check, and he came up while I was still on stage. He said, "Is that Levi Stubbs in the Four Tops?" I'm like, yeah, Paul is, yeah. And he said to me, I thought you was a folk singer. And I said, yeah, Paul, it's kind of soul folk, you know. It's like, you know, the album by the Staple Singers, soul folk in action, you know. That's kind of that thing. And he said, oh, you should show me how to play that. Sounds interesting. I said, yeah, sure. If you show me how to play, that's entertainment. He was like, ah. <laughs> Wrote it in 10 minutes. It was very dismissive. He did this whole thing about how much better the demo was. And eventually when I heard the demo, I was like, you know what you're talking about. And it reminds me now, because I have tracks where I think the demo is better. But we never captured that thing on the demo. And when I, whenever I listen to the demo, that's entertainment. I'm like, that's such bullshit. <laughs> I think any songwriter who has the balls to put in a line like Two Lovers Missing the Tranquility of Solitude into a song, you've got to respect that. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> such a great line. And in, and in that song as well, which is a really gritty urban song. I mean, the reason I love it is it really reminds me of my world in the mid-70s, the concrete, crummy, sirens, smell of piss, you know, rotten beer, power cuts. It's like that's entertainment. <laughs> it's all there. and and But suddenly then, suddenly out of that comes this line, two lovers missing the tranquility of solitude. It's like, oh, Shakespeare, what are you doing here? Go and get a proper job. It's like that, really. It's like It's like... Finding a diamond in a, a you know a gasometer, yeah, <laughs> just really, really, really beautiful. And so it always, you know, as soon as I hear those those strummed chords, it kind of has everything that a great jam song does. I think you know, it's really, a, it's really a working class thing. You know, I think the jam with a great working class British band for for expressing working class sentiments. You know, Saturday's Kids, those kind of songs. You know, they really spoke to me of my my youth. Hey, look, there's one thing I should ask. I mean, it'd be remiss of me not to ask you about where we are right now, the times that we're in right now, because, my God, it's pretty bleak, and what's about to happen this winter is is terrifying, quite frankly. What's your view as, you know, you, you mentioned being a member of the Labour Party back then. I don't know if you still are, but obviously anti-Tory. What do they need to do to, to make a change to get to get into power? Well, that's a very good question, isn't it? I think I think we're past that at the moment. I think people are looking for um, extra parliamentary activity. That's why people are much more supportive of people going on strike than they were back in the in the seventies and the eighties. In the seventies and the and the eighties, uh, prices were rising, but wages were rising as well. And what's happened now is prices are rising, but wages are stagnating. So the the gap uh, is is getting bigger. The cost of living crisis that we're facing is you know really going to affect millions and millions of people. And everyone knows that the government, as it was within their power to do something about this because we've seen it, A, in the pandemic, but before that we saw it in quantitative easing where the, the government created money to uh, give to the banks ostensibly to loan 
to people, but they didn't do that. They used it to show up their bottom line. Mm. So we know the government can act if they want to do this, but their reluctance to do it, I think that's going to be the point on which the, the Tories finally come a cropper. And I'm hoping the Labour Party can find the wherewithal to articulate that idea of a, of a you know, we have to do this for the common good. And, I, and I, I think the idea of the common good has some currency from the pandemic, you know, the willingness of people to mosque up and to get vaccinated and to look after one another. I mean, I know there are a few sort of crazy anti-mandate people, but they're just, you know, people who think the world revolves around them. You know, in, in the end, the majority of people recognise that we were doing this in the common good. So that spirit, I think, where we all work together to get ourselves out of this difficult situation is going to manifest itself in this coming winter. Whether the Labour Party can connect with that or not, we'll have to wait and see. But I think in, in the end, it's going to be people power, people getting organised, uh, whether that's in unions or food banks or some kind of social collective. I think that's going to happen before the Labour Party get on board. Um, which is a shame, but they seem to be sort of after the um, Corbyn leadership, they seem to be scurrying back to the safety of the centre ground at a time when all the things that Corbyn was talking about, spending money insulating people's homes, free broadband, broadband communism, they dismissed that as. All the things that Corbyn was talking about, people are now saying, oh, I mean, there was an editorial in the uh, uh, article in the Times today saying that, you know, the road protesters who sat in the road uh, insulate Britain were right despite the fact that the Tories, you know, ripped them a new arsehole when they were stopping Range Rovers from driving around the M25. You know, that change is coming. And the Tories are going back to their Thatcherite comfort zone. And Keir Starmer turns out to be more than a, a Blairite than the, he gave the impression when he was running for leader, when he, he made a big thing about, you know, carrying on the positive aspects of Corbynism. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not holding my breath waiting for him to wake up and smell the coffee, but there are good people out there. You know, people who, who sort of connected with Red Wedge, you know, people like Andy Burnham, who seem to understand where we're going and how to deal with these problems, who are, who are stepping up and saying, look, you know, the Labour Party should be doing with this. So the thing that's most important in these times for those of us who want to make the world a better place is not to give in to our cynicism. There's enough cynicism out there to go around. You don't need to be cynical as well, mate. And I think for musicians, this is really important because we're really, I think, I didn't really think in these ways in the, in Red Wedge, but I now recognise that empathy is the actual currency of music. Whatever music you're making, it's really all about connecting with other people and making people feel they're not alone. And I know Paul is aware of that because, you know, I've worked with him, I've listened to him. He still has that strong sense of empathy in his music. And I think we need to we need to reconnect with that in society. You know, there's a bit of a war on empathy. You know, anyone who, who speaks out on a compassionate idea gets piss poured on them and mm. called a, you know, a woke, whatever that means, yeah. you know. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the young generation now, I think, are, are I think they're more political than they were in the nineteen eighties, but they're less ideological. You know, there's no point in people looking for a new Billy Bragg to write there as power and union. Young people articulate them their, their ideas in different ways now, but there are lots of you know plenty of people out there who are connecting with you know. I, I, I've run a stage at That's Glastonbury called Leftfield with my partner Juliet Wills. We had Jamie Webster there from Liverpool, you know, and he had them chanting "fuck the Tories." I'm like, wow. <laughs> this is this is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, we never went that far. You know, and his songs his songs aren't ostensibly political in the way that mine are, but they are all about community and supporting one another and lifting up those people. It's about empathy, you know. It's yeah. about empathy. 
And I think uh, a winter of discontent will bring more of those kind of people to the fore. You know, there's bands out there like Benefits uh, who are kind of like a sleeve of mods, but they're not shy about the politics. Bob Villain is out there. He's a kind of rapper who's talking very heavily about in, in politics. It's, it's happening out there, but music no longer is the only social medium available to young people to speak. So it's lost some of its uh, ability to dominate youth culture in a way that it did you know well i mean the night in the 20th century music was the only social medium we had you know so it, you know if you walked around with a jam record under your arm or style council on your own uh, album on your own you're making a statement you were saying i'm you know i'm this person you know particularly with an artist like paul he told you how to dress he told you how to hold you know to how to carry yourself you know nobody took that advice off me you know i'm <laughs> he was the style and i was the content you know it was kind of yin and yang and then it, as you can see from my t-shirt it remains the same that that aspect music no longer has that vanguard role but it still does have the ability to bring people together in the way we brought people together in red wedge uh and during the minor strike and for other issues for other causes and i know paul is still tuned into that because he did a gig for corbyn for all these dismissive i don't do them i was so pleased to see that because that's the paul weller i i know and i know he's not lost that because i hear it in his music it's just whether he's willing to stick his head over the parapet and his willingness to do that in in for red wedge was absolutely Colossal. We wouldn't be talking about it if Paul hadn't had the courage to do that and put his entire career on the line and say, yeah, I'm standing up for this that nobody's ever done before with the Labour Party, the boring old mainstream Labour Party, the shabby old Labour Party, the unglamorous Labour Party. I'm going to bring all of my stardust and all of my sort of pop credibility and I'm going to, I'm going to put it into this because of the times and because of the threat that Thatcherism presents to me and my generation. I feel I, I must do this. And I think Paul is still a writer driven by conscience and his support for Corbyn. Corbyn's not an easy thing to support. I'm still getting stick about it, you know, to stick up for someone. He's a, unfortunately a divisive figure because he's not in person himself, Jeremy, a divisive figure at all, quite the opposite. But the way he was portrayed and kind of, uh, you know, messed around by the press, it's quite a divisive thing to come out and support him. So Paul doing that just was like a nod to anyone who's still watching the, those principles that he had back in the day, although he's kind of might have think otherwise now. He's still, he's still willing to step up when it counts. So let's not be surprised if we don't see him do something in the coming six months. One other question I have to ask you about, I read this, but something you had in common, you and Paul. Um, don't you both clip newspaper articles about yourselves? Is this right? <laughs> it's a really great thing. It was the first time I went to meet him at Solid Bond, which was um, near Marble Arch, his studio to talk about Red Wedge and to talk about the ideas behind it. He said, yeah, come and see me. So I went over to see him and we sat in, I don't know if it was his office, we sat in an office there. And while I chatted to him, he was just cut, cutting out his press for the week. <laughs> and I, it was just something that I'd do. You know, I was terrible in the early days. I used to buy two copies of the NME in case I lost one. I was terrible. Like <laughs> but the fact that Paul did it himself said something to me like, this is an authentic guy. This is a guy who's, you know, he's just like me, really. He's not that big pop star who's got loads of flunkies running around doing his will. You know, he's one of the biggest pop stars in Britain today. And here he is. He's bought the music papers. He's cutting out his press and putting it in. Putting it in scrap. And that, to, that to <laughs> me was, you know, that was a key moment of bonding with me and Paul. I don't know what he thought about me. I have no idea. But for me, when I was looking to find if Paul Weller was real or just a construct like Boy George, you know, completely made up construct. Paul was real and he still is real. And that's something that is a very strange job to do. Trust me. 
you know, and to hold on to your authenticity is not easy. And, you know, respect to Paul because he's, he's, he's managed to do it over like four, five decades now. Hey, look, this has been so special, man. I've loved every second of this. I do have one final question for you. Yep. So the purpose of this podcast is to talk to amazing people like yourself, talk about their careers, your music, in your case, and your connections with Mr. Weller. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. And you are the only person who's been on this podcast that I've interviewed before back in my former day, that former life and that. But I never got the interview with Paul. If it happens off the back of this podcast, what should I ask him? What should I talk to him about? Where'd you buy your socks? <laughs> you always had the best socks on Red Wedge Tour. I was like, damn incredible. Those socks. There's so much attention to detail. Where are you getting those socks, Paul? <laughs> that might be the ultimate Paul Weller question, actually. It could be. I think you're right. <laughs> Good to speak to you, Dan. I really hope you do get to to interview him. In the meantime, it's been great talking about this music I love, you know, Jam, Star Council and Paul Solo stuff. It's been really great talking about it. And the Red Wedge as well. It's really uh, nice to revisit all that kind of stuff. Something that I, I would, you know, if the time presented itself again, I would I would do again. I mean, it's, it's, it's particular, you know, those things don't come around again. But I feel sure that if if it did and I had to go out and do that, that Paul would be there as well. He'd also recognise artists should do more than just sing about shit. They should actually try and do something about it. Oh, man. Billy Bragg, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, man. Good to speak to you, Dan. Good luck with the podcast. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Billy. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye. Well, there you go. What an absolute joy. The magnificent Billy Bragg joining me on episode 114. A real pleasure to have him on. Do check out the show notes for this podcast for more information, including details of Billy's latest studio album, his 10th, The Million Things That Never Happened, which is just fantastic. Details on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, if you've enjoyed that episode, please do share it on your social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Let's spread the word. Billy Bragg on the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, right? And if you enjoyed it, you can also buy me a virtual coffee as well. Just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com and click on the store button. Doing that this week, Andy Tolcher, hi to you. Brian G, thanks for your donation. Andrew Duncan says, thanks, Dan, for a great podcast. Looking forward to Billy Bragg. I hope you enjoyed it, Andrew. Mike Steer, hi to you. Kevin Smith, hello. Paul Viola, Joy Beth Bell, Ewan, Andy Liddle. Great show this week, mate. Keep up the good work. Bless your friend. Jen. Howard says, keep up the brilliant work. I love it. Brian, thanks to you. Sam Molnar, hello, mate. Loving your work, Dan. Keep it up. Alex McLaughlin says, keep on keeping on, Dan. Russ Ratton, brilliant, mate. Keep it going. Stephen Cartwright, hi to you. Says, brilliant podcast, Dan. I've listened to them all and some of them twice or more, with Tufty and Shane being my most played. Keep up the good work, pal. Thanks, Stephen. Andy Forrester, brilliant podcast, Dan. Loved all the guests, especially Ann Weller. Keep at it. Anne was fantastic. You're right. Billy J, love the podcast, pal. Keep it up. Patrick, love the podcast, Dan. Hope for many more till you meet the man himself. Ali L, thanks for the brilliant content, Dan. Paul Hubbard, keep it up. The best part of the week, pal. Thank you, mate. Stu Burns, keep on keeping on. Dick Cherry says, thanks, Dan. The podcast has rejuvenated my love of all things Weller and cost me a fortune in CDs, vinyls, books, DVDs, all worth it. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Dick. John Folks, the vast majority of Weller coverage is the same angle, the same rehash of the same stories you've heard a million times before, not with Dan and his amazing podcast. Thank you, John. That means a lot, mate. Jane, the jam tart with a heart, says keep up the fab work. Colin, keep up the good work, Dan. Loving this and all the guests, books, tunes, photos. My Christmas list grows each week. Brilliant. Nicholas George Keane, hello to you. Steve says great work, Dan. Hope this goes a little way to helping. Rachel, the jam tart. Here's your morning coffee for the rest of the week. 
Thank you to you, Duncan and Brian. Thanks for all your donations. Wow, what a week. Really, really appreciate it. If you want to get involved, just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Cheers to everyone. That's really kind. Really appreciate it, everybody. Now, if you want to get in touch on social media, you can do so. Twitter at WellerFanPod or go to Instagram and Facebook, Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.